In the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 10, we read where he came into the world, the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. Now, he is Christ. Then it says, he came his own, his own received him not. That was the Jewish people. But as many as did receive him, gave he power to become the sons of God, even those that believe on his name, which were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Now, I've used this to introduce what I want to speak to you about from the second chapter of Luke. But we notice here in John 1.10, it says he was in the world, that's Christ. The world was made by him, it's Christ. But the world knew him, Christ, not. That is interesting to me that the one who spoke the world into existence, the one who upholds all things by the word of his power, the one who lived a sinless life, who always went about doing good, the one who taught, preached, did miracles, etc., who saved his people from their sins, the world that he created, he was in, the world knew him not. Now, to go along with that, 1 John 3, 1, the Apostle John said, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us. It says now that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Being his children, if you walk in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus Christ, the world will not know you any more than it knew Christ. Now, we go back to John 1.11. He says he came to his own, which means the Jewish people. Christ was born in the nation of Israel. He came to his own, his own received him not. That means in general, overall, they did not receive him as the promised Messiah. Even though they supposedly had been looking for him for a long period of time. The prophets had spoken about his arrival into this world. But there were a few that did it. That's what I want to put in your mind in the beginning. There were a few that did receive him. And then he tells us who those few were. For as many as did receive him, gave he power. That word power means right, it means privilege. Gave he power to become the sons of God. He's not saying here that he enabled them to become his children. The word become here is like the word becometh. Sometimes uh, your wife may try a dress on and the husband might say, well, that really becomes you. It looks nice on you. Or she might say a suit really becomes her husband. It looks really nice on him. That's the idea. Now, when this verse is quoted outside the Primitive Baptist Church, 99 times out of 100, they will not quote verse 13. And verse 13 is the key to understanding what I've just said. For he came his own, his own received him not, but as many as received him, there were some who did, gave he power, gave he the right, gave them the privilege to become the sons of God, even to those that believe on his name. There was a Jewish remnant that believed that Jesus was the Messiah. There was a Jewish remnant that believed on his name. All the others did not. So those that believe on his name, now we know the Bible teaches us that belief is an evidence of grace. It's not a condition to be performed to become a child of God. It's an evidence one has been born of the Spirit of God. 1 John 5, 1 makes this very clear. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. The TH here, the THs in the King James Bible are there for a reason. It shows a present state uh, of a person's life, their mind, their life, etc. Okay? So it says, even those that believe in his name who were born, now he's going to tell you even more about them, who were born not of blood, didn't come through natural generation, not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, 
that eliminates man's will right there. You know, if you just remember that, that will teach you that salvation is not based upon the free will system, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. That's how they've been born, of God. Not according to the will of the flesh, not according to the will of man, and not according to blood. Here are three ways they were not born, and the only way they were born, which is the only way anybody's born in the Spirit of God, is of God. Now, in Romans chapter 9, verse 27, Paul says, Though the number of the children of Israel will be like the sand of the seashore, says, A remnant shall be saved. Two verses later, it says, Except the Lord had left us a seed, we would be made like the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? Obviously, Paul here, again, is quoting from Genesis. He believed that Sodom and Gomorrah were two real cities. Two real cities that, because of their immoral state, God burned them down. God sent fire from heaven and burned those two cities down. And the other ones that escaped was Lot. By the mercy of God, Lot and his wife and two daughters were led out of there. All right, then, we notice in Romans, just while we're on this, Romans eleven twenty six. 26, it says, And all Israel shall be saved. Now, I just told you in Romans 9, 27, it says, Though the children of Israel will be like the sand by the seashore, only a remnant shall be saved. That's not a contradiction. You just have to study the Scriptures, rightly divide the word of truth, because there's different things under consideration. Romans 10, 1, Paul says, Brother, my heart's desire and prayer for God is that Israel might be saved. You've got a verse that says a remnant shall be saved. You've got a verse that says all Israel shall be saved. And you've got a verse where Paul says, I, my prayer is that Israel might be saved. Paul is not confused. <laughs> Paul is setting forth different things here. You've got to read the context and understand how they all fit together. Now, we read in Luke 12, 32, where the Lord Jesus Christ said, Fear not, little flock. It's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now, you, a kingdom had to be in existence in that day for Christ to give it to them. See, we're not looking for a kingdom to come down the road in the future to be established. The kingdom exists right now. He says, fear not who? Little flock. He's addressing a remnant of people. Fear not, little flock. It's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Now, in Matthew 7, 13 and 14, as Christ is bringing uh, his message of Sermon on the Mount to a conclusion, he tells his disciples, not the world, but his disciples, his followers, his children, his disciples, he says to his disciples, strive near at the straight gate. For wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many go in thereat. But straight is the gate, that's spelled S-T-R-A-I-T, no G in it, not talking about a straight line here, we're talking about that which is difficult. But straight is the gate, and narrow is the way that leads unto life, and few be there that find it. We got the word few, we got the word remnant, we got the word little flock. Are you developing a picture in your mind here this morning? Okay? Now let's look in Romans eleven five. Paul here says, uh, you know, he's, he's referring back to some biblical history here in the days of Elijah. Remember in the days of Elijah? When Elijah thought he was the only one left, and the Lord said, Elijah, I've got 7,000 men who not yet bowed their knee to the image of Baal, nor kissed his face. Uh, 7,000 was just a very small number in comparison to the, number of the total number of the children of Israel. In other words, there was a remnant. 
He says, even so now, right now, he says, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Now, we got an interesting expression here. According means in, in harmony with. Even so now, just like it was in the days of Elijah, when there was just a remnant in the days of Elijah, he said, even so now, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. If it's a grace, it's no longer works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. If it's works, it's not of grace. Otherwise, work is no more works. Here's another verse that plainly separates grace and work. It can't be both. It's like you cannot mix oil and water. It just will not work, right? You ever tried that? They will not mix. There are two different types of properties that will not mix together. And grace and works, in the sense he's talking about, do not work together. Now, we certainly believe in good works. 2 Timothy 3.16 was on last Sunday. All scriptures give them inspiration of God and it's proper for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto good works. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works before which he hath ordained that we should walk in them. The Lord's people are commanded to walk in good works manifesting their relationship with God, manifesting their love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ said, let your light so shine men might show you what? Your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Uh, one of the things that you know, people who believe in the doctrine of grace, as we do and proclaim it, are charged with that this would be a licentious doctrine and that would just lead to a life of immorality and we flatly deny the charge. The grace of God operating in your hearts does not lead you to desire to live a life of immorality. It leads you away from that. It leads you away from that. Notice uh, Titus chapter 2, verse 9. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared unto all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Now, you can't do that unless you know what ungodliness is. There's a lot of stuff being pushed today in the world, in America, that is totally ungodliness. Ungodliness is the opposite of godliness. Denying ungodliness and worldly lust, worldly lust is opposite of righteousness. Look into 2 Timothy 2.9. He says, For the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his, and that everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity. I don't know how language could be any clearer than what I've given you here this morning, that God expects his children to depart from iniquity. He expects his children to deny ungodliness, worldly lust, and to live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. That's a little bit more than I was going to say about all that, but anyway, it's said. So we <laughs> now, the picture I want to get in your mind is about the remnant, about the, the few, about the little flock. Because I want to talk to you about two people here this morning, Luke chapter 2, that fit in that category. One of them's name is Simeon, one of them name is Anna. Now, Elizabeth and Zacharias were two of those people. When you start reading the Gospel of Luke in chapter 1, you'll read about Zacharias and Elizabeth. Of course, they will become the parents of John the Baptist. And it says they kept the commandments of God and his ordinances blameless. They knew the word of God. And they were looking for uh, the Messiah to come in this world. And many of the Jewish, young Jewish women were hoping they might be the one that Isaiah was talking about. 
In Isaiah 7, 14, it says, Behold, in that day a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. That shall call his name Emmanuel, which by interpretation is God with us. But of course, Elizabeth is not a virgin. She'd been married to Zacharias for many, many years, but she is barren. But she also knew, and Zacharias also knew, that Malachi and Isaiah had promised that there would be a forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ, a messenger, if you please, of the covenant. And of course, we're talking about John the Baptist. And they were praying for a child. Now, whether they were praying for that child or not, I don't know. But they were praying for a child. And the Bible says they were old and well-stricken in years. That means they were really old. That's what, I, that's what the expression well-stricken in years means. They were not just, that just reached the category of old. They then pushed on through that category of ways. All right? But the Lord enables Elizabeth to miraculously conceive, and she brings forth John the Baptist. Now, they are part of that remnant. Mary and Martha and Lazarus, they're part of that remnant. Uh, they were looking for him. And we have two right here. These two is Simeon and Anna. Now, Mary and Joseph also obviously were two of them. So you got Zacharias and Elizabeth. You got Mary and Joseph, who are, of course, husbands and wives. And then we have here Simeon and Anna, who were not husband and wife but two spiritual giants in the early days of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, to show you how devoted and how godly Mary and Joseph were, just start reading this chapter here in chapter 2, and you'll find that they were determined to do the best they could to cross all T's and on all I's in keeping Moses' law concerning what God had commanded them, even concerning their son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is born. He's wrapped in swaddling clothes. He's laid in a manger. The angels make their visit. After that, we're told here in Luke chapter 2 that they called his name Jesus. That was the first thing they obeyed. What did the angel say in Matthew 121? The angel tells Joseph, says, Fear not to take unto Mary to be thy wife, for that shall exceed the purse of the Holy Ghost. She shall bring forth a son, thou shalt call his name Jesus. When he was born, they didn't have to worry about what they're going to call him. The Lord already told them what to call him. Call his name Jesus, and so they named him Jesus. And then on the eighth day, they circumcised him. Now, circumcision is not a pleasant thing. It's an unpleasant thing. And the Jewish people were known as a people of circumcision. And they referred to people who were not Jewish people, Gentiles in particular, as the uncircumcision. You find that language in a number of places in the New Testament. Go back to the days of Abraham. That's when circumcision came into existence. When God commanded Abraham to be circumcised, his son to be circumcised, Ishmael, and then Isaac. Ishmael was circumcised on, the thir on his 13th uh, birthday, or when he was 13. And of course, Isaac, when he was eight days old. This was a seal uh, of the covenant that Israel was to be unto God, a covenant people, his people. That was a seal and sign of that relationship. But there's some importance to go along with, with the subject of circumcision this morning, other than what I've just said. You come to the last two verses, Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, and you'll find where Paul establishes the doctrine of spiritual circumcision or spiritual Israel, which is important for you to understand when you read that word Israel in the book of Romans. He says, for we are not Jews, which are uh, outward, you know, outwardly, but we're Jews inwardly, not circumcision, which is of the flesh, but circumcision, which is of the heart. Circumcision is a cutting a circular cutting. 
And it's a picture of the new birth. When you're born of the Spirit of God, your heart has been circumcised by God. So Jesus circumcised on the eighth day. Then you're going to find they brought him uh, to Jerusalem according to the law. You'll find an expression according to the law used numerous times here in chapter 2. They brought him according to the law. Because according to the law, they had to redeem the Lord Jesus Christ. That's interesting that the Redeemer had to be redeemed. The Lord Jesus Christ, through his shed blood, hath redeemed us. Ephesians 1, 7, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sin. He's the great Redeemer. We like to sing that hymn, do we not? The great Redeemer, that's one of my favorite hymns in the hymn book. It's all about the Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. But they had to redeem Jesus because that was according to Moses' law. A male child had to be redeemed, cost five shekels to do it. So they did that. That was according to the law. And then at 40 days old, they had to fulfill the law in terms of marriage purification. You can go back to the book, book of Leviticus for the information about this. But the days of purification for a male was different than the days of purification for a female. So we're talking about a man, child. We're talking about a 40-day uh, period of time when he's 40 days old. When you look in Luke chapter 2, you've got a range of the life of Christ from the time he's born to the time he's 12 years of age. When he's born, 8 days old, 40 days old, 12 years old, all in the second chapter of the Gospel of Luke. So they bring him. As they bring him into the temple for her purification rites, you're going to find a man by the name of Simeon is brought to our attention. In verse 25. Now, Simeon, we're, we're told several things about Simeon, so it's important for us to get a picture of who Simeon was. The name Simeon, uh, it, like uh, we'll look at Anna in a minute too, but the name Simeon means that he that hears and he obeys. Simeon was, you know, the first Simeon we read about was uh, born unto uh, to Abraham, uh, excuse me, unto Jacob. It means he that hears and obeys. Simeon is just and devout. Now, by nature, there's no one just. Solomon tells Ecclesiastes, not a just man upon the face of this earth that doeth good and sinneth not. By nature, where nobody is just. But the just one, the Lord Jesus Christ, which is just one, just one, that's the Savior, came into this world, and according to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, he offered one sacrifice for sins, the just for the unjust. That made the unjust just in the sight of God. Because now God sees the unjust through the just one. He sees you through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he sees you as if you had never committed a sin. Now, that's more sometimes my little mind can wrap around how God could ever see me as if I would never committed a sin. But he sees me through the blood of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, you see. All right, so that's how the Lord's people become just. But that word just is used in another way. When he's used to describe Simeon, it means he was an honest man. He was a truthful man. He was a man of integrity. He was a man who let his light so shine before men. He was a man who had separated himself from the world in which he was living. He was dedicated to studying the Old Testament scriptures. He was a just man and devout. The word devout means devoted. It means godly. It means pious. Now, Simeon didn't say that about himself. See, the Pharisees are always saying that about themselves. Nobody else is saying about them, but the Pharisees, that's how they describe themselves. But see, Simeon's not saying, I'm devout and I'm just. No, God said he was devout and he was just. That's a big difference, isn't it? Now, let's notice a few other things that said about Simeon. We begin here in verse 26. 
Well, back, back in verse 25, excuse me, just in about, he was waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Ghost was upon him. That expression, consolation of Israel, means the, Messian, the messianic hope. In other words, Israel again was looking for the Messiah, and they should have been. Isaiah tells us when he'd be born, tells us how he'd be born. Micah tells us where he's going to be born. Daniel tells us when he's going to be born. Other prophets concerning the Lord and Jesus Christ are fulfilled to a jot and to a tittle. All scripture had to be fulfilled and all scripture was fulfilled. And so they were looking for that. The word Christ means anointed. They were looking for the Lord's Christ. They were looking for the anointed, looking for the Messiah to come into this world. They were watching for it, looking for it, studying the scriptures. And I believe Simeon knew that uh, the time was very near. I've been asked a number of times in recent days, uh, did I believe that uh, the end of time was near? And my answer is yes. I do. Um, the signs are there. But what does near mean? It might mean today. It might mean 50 years from now, 100 years from now. That would be near in terms of the relationship of time. It's been about 6,000 years, you see. Uh, but ungodliness is, is running rampant and, so, and over, you know, well in the world in which we're living here, and especially in America. You go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, you'll find where there's uh, 20, 23 uh, things that uh, shall happen in the last days. And while you can find any of these 23, ever since the beginning of time, you'll find all 23 of these going on right now. Right now. But you know one of the things uh, that's not listed in new perversions of the Bible, of those 23? Man shall be without natural affection. That's been worded out. Wonder why. Kind of fits into the society today, does it not? Wonder why that's been taken out. Every translation since 1881 has been based upon a corrupt set of manuscripts. They got started back in 200 A.D., as I mentioned last Sunday. King James Bibles from a different set. Now, the ungodliness uh, of this world has found its way through the corrupt versions of what's called a Bible. Uh, this morning, Karen was reading something on the computer about somebody she follows that she really enjoys. They have a lot of good things to say, etc. And they uh, quoted a verse, uh, you know, they claimed, of course, it's out of the Bible, and this person means well, I'm sure. But when she read it, it had just enough in it to make me think, oh, that sounds like the Bible. You know, it, it, it sounds kind of like the Bible. <laughs> um, if these versions are so good, why do they have to keep coming out with more and more and more and more in a very short period of time? People think about it. <laughs> okay? Now, I got a Bible thing on my, on my phone, and I was actually looking this morning of all the Bible translations I can get on my phone to follow. Uh, you know, it's a, 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 a Bible app there that I use quite often. And I didn't count them this morning. I wished I had. But there must have been at least 20 of them. Translations I've never even heard about. And Karen asked me this morning, said, what is this one here? I had to think about it a while just to come up with it. It's incredible. It's amazing. Very amazing. But anyway, we find that Simeon was just and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, waiting for the, for the Messiah. It's an expression again, the Messianic hope. It says the Holy Ghost was upon him. I have found that people who attend the house of God faithfully and are very dedicated in their worship and service of God, they have some information a lot of other people don't have. 
people really walk close to the Lord, the Lord's going to show them things, reveal things to them that he's not going to show people who do not. Well, I find this biblically. I found that in examples in my life. Simeon had a habit of going to the temple of God, which is a place of worship in the city of Jerusalem. The Holy Ghost is upon him. Interesting, if you go read Luke chapter 4, you'll find when Christ was on top of the mountain of, trans, uh, excuse me, the mountain of temptation, you'll find where it starts off, and the Holy Spirit led him, and after that experience it said the Holy Spirit was with him and overshadowed him. The Holy Ghost. Now the Holy Ghost is with Simeon here as he goes into the temple. It was revealed in him by the Holy Ghost that he should not see death till he had seen the Lord's Christ. The Lord's Christ, the Lord's anointed. It's revealed unto him that he's not going to see death. Now, most people take by that that Simeon was an older man. I think he was an older man. I think his days on this earth now had, it was coming close to an end. That's what I think. doesn't tell that specifically, but that's what I think here. But regardless, the Holy Ghost said, you're not going to die, Simeon, till you've seen the Lord's Christ. What a promise that was. Can you imagine the Holy Spirit telling you that? You're not going to die until the Lord comes again. I wish you'd tell me that. <laughs> I wish you would tell me that because that's my hope that I'll be here when the Lord comes again and I'll have a translation instead of a death. I just, I, if it please the Lord, Lord, if it please you, let me know that. Let me know I will not die till I have, until you come again at the end of time. That'd be a wonderful revelation to have. Uh, here's the revelation. It's given unto Simeon. You shall not die till you've seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple. How did he come in the temple? By the Spirit. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus, do for him after the custom of the law. Now I want you to notice something about, about Simeon here. Simeon was led by the Spirit of God. Simeon knew the Word of God. Simeon knew the will of God because he knew the Word of God. And Simeon's going to get to see the Son of God. Isn't that great? He was led by the Spirit of God, knew the Word of God, understood the will of God. Now he's going to get to see the Son of God. And that's what's going to happen before he leaves this world here. So on this particular day, Simeon's in the temple. And in comes Mary, and in comes Joseph, and they're carrying a 40-day-year-old little baby in their arms. I don't know how Simeon persuaded them to let him hold them, but he did. <laughs> you know, mothers can be a little uh, cautious about them kind of things, especially the way men hold babies. You ever notice how men hold babies compared to women? I mean, mothers just almost freak out Well, when the daddy holds the baby. You can see him dropping the baby at any time. But, but a mother just holds that baby. I mean, it, a, a tornado couldn't separate that baby from the mother's arms. It's not, that's not exactly the case with a man. <laughs> it just seems kind of awkward, you know. But anyway, it says, Then he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, And here you're going to read the fifth song, you might say. Some people call them Christmas songs. But anyway, the fifth song uh, that is written... Uh, uh, that has been spoken by different ones up to Simeon. The first one is by Elizabeth, found in chapter 1. You find her breaking out in a song of praise and blessing God when Mary came carrying the Lord Jesus Christ and she was carrying John the Baptist. Then you'll find, she says, Blessed art thou among women, you know, for, for the Lord has been with thee, etc. And then Mary breaks out 
And her famous song says, My soul doth magnify the Lord, my spirit rejoiceth in God my Savior, so forth and so on. Then you find in John 1, 67, you'll find Zacharias. This is after he went nine months not able to say a word because he uh, doubted what the angel said unto him. He goes nine months without saying anything, and then the Lord restores his speech back to him, his tongue back to him where he can speak. And beginning in verse 67 to the end of the chapter, you find Zacharias' song. And then in chapter 2, you'll find the song of the angels. When the angels appeared and said, Unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And you'll find him wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger, etc. That's song number 4. And now you find song number 5 being spoken of by Simeon. He says, Then he took him up in his arms and blessed God. You know, we, we talk about God blessing us, but there are ways you bless God. You bless God when you praise God. We bless God in the song service here this morning. Uh, when Brother Mark prayed, he blessed God in his prayer. I trust I'm blessing God right now, trying to preach the word of God to you, trying to preach the gospel to you. And you bless God by receiving, understanding, and believing it, embracing it, and applying it to your life. That's how you bless God. So we see here that Simeon blessed God and said, Lord, now let us thy servant depart in peace according to thy word. Simeon uses a word here that's very precious to me, the word depart. The word depart, it means to unleash, it means to untie, it means to set free. And several word pictures used about that, it's like setting a, uh, untying a ship and it sets out to sail on the water. Or you release a prisoner who's been in prison for 20 years and now he's, he's free and he walks out of that prison. Or a tent, uh, you know, a tent is a temporary place it, it, it signifies that which is temporary because you put a tent up, you use it, and you take it down, and you use it again, put it up, and you take it down. That's what the tabernacle did for 40 years. Uh, they put it up, and they took it down. They relocate, and they took it, relocate, they took it up, and they put it down. And this, this body, what's this body called in 2 Corinthians chapter 5? It's called a tabernacle, isn't it? If we know this tabernacle be dissolved, we have a building of God not made with hands eternal in the heavens above. If you study how that tabernacle was taken down, they didn't start taking it down from the outward end. They started from the inward and took it out. They went all the way to the holiest of holies, and the holiest of holies is where the Ark of the Covenant was. It was covered with the mercy seat. That's the first thing they took down. Then they worked their way out. When a person departs, what happens? The inward, that which is inward, departs first, right? The soul and spirit uh, departs the body and goes back to be with the Lord in heaven, and then the body awake to the re reunion when the Lord comes again. It's a picture of how we're dismantled, you might say, uh, here. So you have a tent, you have a ship, you have a prison, you have a, a burdens of beasts, a beast of burdens, you get it right, beast of burdens, such as the oxen. When the oxen's plowed hard all day long, working in the field all day long, and you, you get finished, you come in, you take the yoke off his neck. He feels the freedom. He feels lighter. He feels better. The, the work has been done for the day. That's what the word depart means. He said, now let thy servant depart, what? In peace. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation. See, this is a song here of, uh, of worship because he's saying, Lord, you did exactly what you said you was going to do. You said, I wouldn't die till I've seen the Lord's Christ. I now have seen the Lord's Christ. Now let thy servant depart in peace, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. Notice he calls it thy salvation. It's like David does in Psalms 51. He says to the Lord, Lord, restore to me the joy of thy salvation. 
If it's not thy salvation, there's no salvation at all. The salvation we're talking about comes from God. It belongs to God. Psalms 111 verse 9 says he sent redemption. That's salvation. He sent redemption, what? To his people. Why? Because it wasn't available on this earth. No man could redeem himself. No man could redeem anybody else. It took the perfect shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, Christ had to come into this world, so God sent redemption unto his people. Notice, unto his people. He says, mine eyes have seen thy salvation. Aren't you glad God has salvation? Aren't you glad that the salvation of God has been, will be applied to every heir of promise, every child of grace, every object of his love, every covenant child that he foreknew before time ever began? Christ died for all of them, delivered all of them from the power of sin, the penalty of sin. And one day he's going to deliver us from the very presence of sin and take us into glory. Now, he says, for mine eyes have seen thy salvation. We notice here how Simeon hailed Christ. And I remember when I first thought about this. Uh, to me, it's one of the most precious thoughts God's ever given to me. And he's given me a lot of them over the years, but this is one of the most precious. When I talk about Simeon holding Jesus, it came to me how Jesus was holding Simeon. At the very time that Jesus is being held in the arms of Simeon, according to John chapter 10, Simeon is being held in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. Read with me over there in John 10, 27. Jesus said, I know my sheep, they hear my voice, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. And no man can pluck them where? Out of my hands. Simeon, and you, and I, and all the elect family of God's in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ. And my Father which gave them me is greater than all of them that can pluck them out of my Father's hands. Simeon was in the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ, and now Christ is in the hands of the arms of Simeon himself. That's, that's pretty amazing to me. Simeon the creature is uh, holding his creator. Simeon the sinner is holding his Savior. So he's singing this song here of praise and adoration to God. Mine eyes have seen thy salvation, which thou hast prepared before the face of all people. A light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. And this was highly unusual language for a Jew to be speaking anything about Gentiles. But he says, this baby, I'm holding my arms as a light unto the Gentiles and to all people. Uh, you're not going to find that mentioned. Very, very seldom is it ever mentioned by a Jewish person. But right here in the temple, Simeon shows that the Thy salvation, the salvation of God, reached beyond the borders of natural Israel. And Joseph's mother marveled at those things which were spoken of him. I would have too. <laughs> I would have too. And Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel. Now that expression for the fall and rising of many in Israel has reference to Christ as being a stone. One of the first pictures, images of Christ in the Bible is that of a stone slash rock. You go to the book of uh, Genesis 49, 25, I believe it is, you're going to find where, uh, you're going to find where Moses is pronouncing, uh, excuse me, not Moses, Abraham is pronouncing a prophecy concerning all, all, all of Israel. And he comes to Joseph. This is, excuse me, this is, uh, this is Jacob. Uh, concerning Joseph. He calls him the shepherd, hence the stone of Israel. This stone is found in Psalms 18. It's found in Psalms 118. It's found in Isaiah. It's found in Romans. It's found in Matthew. It's found in Acts. It's found in 1 Peter. It's found all the way through the Bible, Christ being this stone. And let's notice what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 21 about this, about verses 41 on. 
He says, have you never read that the stone which the builders rejected, the builders were the leaders of Israel, the stone which the builders rejected has become the headstone of the corner. He's talking about Christ. Become the headstone of the corner. And he says, he said, God shall take the kingdom of heaven away from you, talking about the Jews, and give it to a nation that brings forth fruit. Now let me just ask you a question. If the kingdom's in the future, how is Christ going to take it from the Jewish people that day? The Jews had, had the kingdom in their possession, so to speak. He said, I'm going to take it away from you, and I'm going to give it to a nation, Gentiles, that shall bring forth fruit. He says, this is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in his sight. He's quoting from Psalms 118. Also, Isaiah 28, 14. The stone. And then he says a sign. You're going to see, see three S's here. You're going to see the stone, a sign, and a sword. And so we see, uh, first of all, the stone. And then we see the sign. Who is the sign? Jesus is the sign. He's the sign. Notice what it says about it. Who shall be spoken of against? Now this is pretty marvelous in my eyes this morning. As I mentioned a little bit earlier, the only perfect, heart, heart, only perfect, sinless, perfect man who's ever lived, uh, he was, had, uh, everybody was against him. <laughs> everybody was against him. When he was born, his earthly birth. You go to John chapter 8, and you're going to find where the Lord tells some Jews on that occasion, if you were Abraham, you didn't believe me, because I spoke the truth, and Abraham would have received that. And they said, we be not born of fornication. We be born of God. You know what they're saying? They're saying to Jesus, you were born of fornication. We know that Mary was expecting a child before y'all ever got married. But see, they didn't recognize and understand that the child she was carrying was not conceived by a man, it was conceived by the Holy Ghost. His, his miracles were questioned. When he did miracles, we opened the eyes of the blind and the hearing of the deaf. You know what they said, how he did it? They said, you've done it by Beelzebub, the prince of devils. They gave credit to the devil himself for the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 9, you'll find, well, John chapter 8, or 9, excuse me, you'll find an attack on his character. And this is where Christ opened the eyes of the blind. And you know what they called him in that chapter, the Pharisees? They called him a sinner. And they said, he's not of God. And they called him a sinner. When he come to his death, when Jesus Christ died hanging on the cross, read Matthew chapter 27, you'll find where they walked around the cross wagging their tongues and their heads. And they said, called him a deceiver. And they said he saved others he could not save. They're ridiculing him, mocking him, making fun of him hanging on the cross. And in his resurrection, read the last verse in Matthew chapter uh, 27, and you'll find where they, again they called him a deceiver. And they said unto Pilate, give us charge, let us put soldiers around the tomb here, lest uh, his disciples come and steal him away and say he was resurrected. Because this man said, this deceiver said, destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it again. And what about his second coming? You come to 2 Peter chapter 3 and it says, in the last day scoffers shall come. What are they scoffing about? They're scoffing about huh, the idea that the Lord's going to come again. It says, where is the promise of his coming? For the fathers are, you know, uh, in the past are still asleep. And they didn't even understand about the flood that destroyed the first world. But I read where Peter tells me 
that the day of the Lord shall come as a thief in the night, and the heaven shall uh, uh, melt, uh, shall uh, uh, melt with fervent the elements shall melt with fervent heat, and the heaven shall be destroyed with a great noise. That's going to happen, but the scoffers say it's not going to happen. They were against his birth. They were against his miracles. They were against his death. They were against his resurrection. They were they're against his second coming. That's the sign. And then it says, a sword shall pierce thy soul, and that was specifically for Mary. From that time forth, there'll be things that would pierce right through the soul of Mary. Of course, the greatest of these, and the worst of these, so to speak, is when Christ is hanging upon a cross. And she's at the base of that cross. She sees her, her firstborn son, the only begotten son of God, hanging upon that cross. Now, about this time, there's a woman by the name of Anna. Now, I took all that time for Simeon. I'm going to have to cut Anna short this morning. <laughs> the word Anna means grace. If there was ever a woman who lived the life of grace, it was Anna. Just, just read this with me. Luke chapter 2, verse 36. And there was one Anna. Now, Anna is a New Testament form of Hannah in the old. Hannah, of course, was the mother uh, of Samuel. Okay? And there was one Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age and had lived with her husband seven years for her virginity. She was a widow of about fourscore and four years, which departed not from the temple, but served God with fastings and prayers night and day. She'd been a widow for 84 years. She'd had a husband for seven years. That makes her 91. She had a husband of seven years from her virginity, which tells me she was a very virtuous woman. Now, Jewish women in that day got married as early as 12. Sometimes they got married at the age of 12. If she was 12, that makes her 103. But let's say she was 15. That makes her 106. We're dealing with a woman over 100 years of age right here, which was mighty old in that particular day. I know she's at least 103. And I'd say most likely maybe 105, 106, somewhere in that range. She'd been a widow for 84 years. This is the first of four widows in the Gospel of Luke that we're given specific information about. 84 years. She departed not from the temple. In other words, she was a regular. <laughs> I, I like to see people so dedicated to the house of God, so dedicated in their attendance, so dedicated and similar to the saints of God, they just seem like they never leave church. If you pass by here any day of the week, you just might see a car belonging to Brother Mike Malone. <laughs> it's all the day that passes. Brother Mike Malone ain't here at this church looking after something, checking on something. It's like he never leaves here. Thank God for <laughs> Brother Mike. <laughs> but not only him. It just seems when you meet with the saints of God, when you meet with them in the house of God on a regular basis, and you mingle with them, and you mix with them, you interact with them, you embrace them, and you shake hands with them, and you see them every single solitary Sunday, every first day of the week, and we have meetings like hopefully coming up this next weekend, you expect to see them there for every single service. It's just like they're a permanent fixture. They never leave the church. She never left the temple. Oh, I'm sure she had to ease out from time to time for this, that, and the other. But in general, that's where she stayed, in the temple of God, which was the house of God in that day. And she served God 
with fastings and prayers night and day, not for just an hour and a half. Night and day, she served God with fastings and prayers. And she coming in that instance. I want you to notice the timing of God. Did you notice it earlier? That Simon just happened to be in the temple at the very time that Mary and Joseph and Jesus come in? Just happened to be there at the same time? Now, you're going to notice here that Anna comes in right at the same time. This is perfect timing. I read in the book of Esther where a man by the name of Haman did not have perfect timing. <laughs> Those who are Bible readers know exactly what I'm talking about. He came in the wrong place in the wrong time. He wound up hanging. But I'm telling you, Anna comes in at the right time at that instant that Simeon is praising God. She joins in it with him. You've got Anna and you've got Simeon singing praises to God at the same time. Love to have a tape of that. I'd love to have a recording of that, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you just love to hear these two elderly people singing? I don't know how old Simeon was, but I know Hannah, Anna rather, was at least 103, maybe 105 years of age, and they've lifted up their voices together that very time when she came in. Uh, it doesn't say it, but I know she had to see Jesus. She had to see Mary. She had to see uh, Joseph. And she comes in at the same time, and her and Simeon join together, their voices together, in praise to Almighty God. Oh, what a scene this was. Anna and Simeon were among a few of that remnant that I started off this message with. They're part of that few. They're part of that little flock that received very special blessings, that God gave them the power to become the sons of God, that is, to manifest their, their sonship with God himself. And they're singing this praise. She coming in that instant gave thanks likewise unto the Lord and spake of him to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. Notice what else she did. She spake of him. To who? To all those that was looking for redemption in Israel. That's your remnant. That's your few. That's your little flock. That were looking for redemption in Israel. That were waiting for the consolation of Israel like Simeon was. She lifted her voice in song and praise along with Simeon. She gave thanks, and then she spake of him. That's why she's called a prophetess. She spake of him uh, unto those that look for redemption in Israel. That's the same thing as consolation in Israel, the Masonic hope. She looked to, spoke of him to them that was looking for redemption in Jerusalem. What a woman. What a giant. Very few people even know who Anna was. The Bible gives a record of her life right here. This widow woman, I don't know how she was sustained. Most widow women that day were very poor. But she's in the temple of God. She's praising God. She's serving God with fastings and prayers. She lifted her voice and praise unto Almighty God along with Simeon. Here's two people. I know they had to know each other, no doubt. But they're not connected other than that. But what a connection they had. Together in that temple, praising God on that occasion. It was just a glorious, glorious place to be, was it not? They're part of that remnant. If I'm not deceived in my heart and in my soul, I believe I'm part of that remnant today of, of a few who desire to serve the Lord in spirit and in truth, that love the doctrines of grace, that love the doctrine of election, the doctrine of predestination, the effectual call, the resurrection, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the providence of God, God's mercy and God's grace, His everlasting love, 
and that salvation is of the Lord from beginning to end, from first to last. It's all of him, uh, you know, totally and completely. I'm telling you, only a few believe what I just stated in the last 15, 20 seconds. But thank God you do. And I do. And I hope the good Lord will give me a sound mind the rest of the days of my life to believe that. <laughs> to believe that and hold to it and embrace that and cherish it and defend it and just to be numbered among a people that see him as the Christ, the son of the living God who saved his people from their sins.